listen to the Lord's word today together. I want to enter into the text with a reminder from Isaiah 53 that is just a bit a taste of reminder of what we've been singing of in Christ and why we're celebrating him in the midst of the study on depression. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. Jesus is our hope. And I hope today to help you um, see that even more clearly. As I stand before you today, uh, some of you know my chemistry background and how when I began in college, I was seeking a degree in chemistry, which I finished. And uh, then the Lord was in the process of calling me into the ministry at the time. But I want to tell you a little bit about what I feel like today and the danger of what I'm sharing with you over these weeks in talking about depression. I kind of feel like a chemistry professor who is wanting to do an experiment to show you something very, very beautiful, very wonderful, and very glorious. But in the mixing of the chemicals that would show you something of beauty and glory, if there is a mishandling or a mistake, it could be a catastrophic disaster that blows up in our faces and actually wounds us rather than helps us. And so I want you to know the delicacy with which I approach what we're speaking of. Why so delicate? Because what we speak of is incredibly and profoundly painful to the human experience. So much so that the leading cause of suicide is unresolved, untreated anxiety and or depression. And that suicide is the second leading cause of death in people between the ages of 15 to 34, only preceded by that of accidental injury. In fact, it leads even cancer in its result. It is the third leading cause of death, you're not going to believe this, in people ages 10 to 14. The third, only defeated in those ages by accident and by cancer. And so what we're speaking of today is something that has led in 2013 41,184 people to take their lives that's an average of about one every 12 minutes. So while we meet today, about eight people will kill themselves just in the United States. And so when we are talking about depression and anxiety and the things that come from it, I want you to know that I want you to see something glorious, but I also want you to know that I come very, very 
fearful, anxious, and careful to talk to you about this. Because I do not want to mishandle the Lord's words or your emotions and situation so that something blows up in you and I err and bring rather than glory injury. And so, I want you to know I love you. And what I share today, I share out of love. Now, there's a funny thing about love and truth as they go together. When I was a kid, I grew up in the methylate age. How many of you grew up in the methylate age? I want your hand way up there. Everybody look around. Okay, the methylate age is a different age. It was not the same age as the Bactine age. How many remember Bactine? few of you, and then the Neosporin with pain reliever age, which is what we're in now. The methylate age was an age where when you scraped your knee, your mom and dad abruptly took you over to the side and they broke out this little bottle of red stuff. How many of you remember the bottle? Y'all remember the bottle? Okay, I'm talking to some folks who know what I'm talking about. And they, they, they basically held you down at that point. And you knew something's going wrong here. I need a good hug, not a good holding down. And then they dipped that uh, little kind of dropper in the bottle. And then they began to dab it onto the wound. And I'm going to tell you something. If they would have covered it with gasoline and lit it with a match, it would not have hurt more. It was incredibly painful. But listen, because of the mercury and the other things that were actually in that component prior to the onset of these wonderful things we have, it warded off infection time and time again. It was a wonderful medicine, but the application of it burned like crazy. And kids would get hurt and run and hide from their parents to save themselves from getting the mercurochrome, the the methylate uh, treatment. Now listen carefully. Some of you have scraped the knee of your soul. And you're here today and you're wounded. And I know it's way worse than the scraped knee. Bear with me. But sometimes when the Lord puts the Scripture on your wound, it's not going to be immediate pain relief. Actually, it's going to be like methylate. And when the Lord first puts it on, it's going to hurt like crazy. And you're going to be tempted to run. But I want to promise you that the Lord's Word is the wound healer. Because He is the healer who gives His Word. And so as we step into this today, I want to be really careful. But I want you to give me grace and walk all the way through. Really, today's sermon has two parts. It's part of an eight-part series. But it has two parts where next week we're going to look to how the resolution came. We're going to look at the depths of it and leading up to the resolution today. So bear with me. It's called the anguish and the angst. We started in this series with the anchor, the worldview that Asaph in Psalm 73 gave. Surely God is good to Israel. God is good in this wonderful personal relationship with His people. To those who are pure in heart, He is good to change them and make them into His likeness by sanctification and purification and salvation and cleansing and washing and regeneration and all the glories of His work in us in salvation. He is good. But Asaph then made an admission. That was the second week. His admission was, My feet have come close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. And he tells how, He almost abandoned his faith. And that he 
in his admission, had lost touch with his anchor because he misunderstood it. And then the next week we spoke of the anxiety that came from that. And we saw how deep his anxiety was and how serious it was. And we sort of unfolded it last week with illustrations to look at that and to ponder that. And it was, it was hard to work through. And they found out how powerful this anxiety can be. And we're moving this week into what we're calling the anguish and the angst. Now, both of those words come from the same source as they come into English, but they've been nuanced differently in English. Anguish is the pain itself when we suffer and the depths of it. But angst is the philosophical, theological, and emotional confusion brought on by anguish. It's when we begin to question our belief system. We begin to question our worldview. We begin to question our doctrine. We begin to question our mortality, our reality. And so anguish and angst, though they come from the same word, really have two different meanings. And that's why we look at them together today. Anguish is the pain itself of suffering, of sorrow, of depression. Angst is the confusion and the ambivalence and the struggle of where am I going to land in my belief system as a result of my suffering. And that's what angst is. It's a confused, struggling, philosophical, theological, and emotional turmoil, upheaval in trying to find an answer to reality. And it's real and palpable. I want to enter in uh, with two things now. Uh, First, I want to talk again about the role anxiety plays in anguish and angst and how it leads to depression. And I want to just give an illustration this way. Anxiety can be the shovel with which we dig the hole of depression. Anger makes us dig faster and more efficiently. Anguish and angst make us give up and wish to stay in the hole. This is a great struggle. Now, I need to share with you a second thing. Not all depression is preceded by anxiety. Not all depression is an outflow of any willful, definite, chosen act by an individual. Sometimes a trauma. Sometimes a chemical imbalance. Sometimes an event, a disappointment, a disfigurement, a disillusionment, a discouragement... Sometimes it's postpartum depression. Sometimes it's the death of a loved one or just the death of something inside us. Very often we have no idea why we're where we are or even how we got there. And we may have played no role in getting there other than just living. And so when we talk about depression... 
We have to be really careful to know that some depression just arrives. We don't know where it came from. We don't know what got it to us. We don't know why it's there. And some depression is led to by intentional acts and thoughts, behaviors, and things that we participate in willfully by our own desires and our own participation. And so there's a broad spectrum when we speak of it. Now, I want to step into the outline now. And by the way, I hate this outline. But it gives us four handles to take home. There was just no way to really encapsulate this. But I've done the best that I can. So bear with me. Number one, Asaph's anguish and angst were chiefly products of the fall. This is so important in understanding depression and anxiety. They are chiefly the products of the fall. When Satan came to the Garden of Eden, he declared war on the souls of men and the image of God. He wants to murder the souls of men and he wants to mar the image of God. So everything that Satan does is to that end that he may somehow steal some kind of glory or his five minutes of fame in the process. And so all of the components necessary to make depression and anxiety were birthed in the Garden of Eden. Everything necessary for you to feel depressed, be depressed, feel anxious, be anxious, and even to take your own life. All of those components were there when Satan waged war against the souls of men to murder them and the image of God to mar them. And he has been laboring intensely without ever resting ever since. And he is warring with you, with me, today. And He shows no mercy. He is a liar. He is the father of lies. The begetter of lies. He is the dragon of deceit. He is despicable in every way. He is determined to mar God's image in you and to murder your soul. And that's His goal. And as He injected in the Garden of Eden this depth of depravity that has wrecked us and made possible the thing called depression, possible the thing called anxiety, in the fall, the emotional component of fear and inadequacy was given when Adam and Eve before had no reason to have any fear. Now they're hiding. Physical death enters. And now we all know that we're fearing death and our bodies are decaying. Spiritual, we are now sinful and fallen and we are sick physically and spiritually, and we are separated from God, cast out from His presence. Relational, we are now alienated from each other. And the first generation of human beings born from Adam and Eve murder each other. The relationship is broken. And existentially, we are filled with shame and loneliness. All the components for you to feel depressed.
depression, anxiety, and even suicidally, were injected in the Garden of Eden to destroy your soul and to mar the image of God in you. That's what he's after. That's his end game. And he's using these things to bring about his ends. One of the things that happened in the garden was our potential to lay blame outside of us. Adam, what have you done? The woman. Eve, what have you done? The serpent. One of the great tragedies of depression and anxiety is how it works on our capacity to accept responsibility for our own sinfulness and seek remedy and repair through the gospel of Jesus Christ. As long as Satan can keep us diverting our situation blame onto other people, he keeps us from dealing with the fact he wants to murder our soul and mar the image of God. And he keeps us occupied with what's wrong with everybody else. That's what's going on in the psalm. Notice last week I talked about how he says them and they and the wicked and he just is absorbed with that in verses 3 through um, 13, 3 through 12. He's absorbed with that. And so the fall laid all the components for depression into the human experience. Physically, with decay and death, sickness. Existentially, with shame. Relationally, with loneliness. Spiritually, with separation. Emotionally, with fear and inadequacy. And he's been working those ever since. Number two. Asaph's anguish and angst were personal, powerful, and partially accurate feelings. Whether feelings are right and wrong, they are real. And they're powerful. When a person feels so deeply that they believe that killing his or herself would actually be a relief, that is a deep, deep, deep. When a person feels so deep that cutting his or herself that inebriating his or herself, that immoralizing his or herself, when they come to the place of doing those things, they're revealing the depth of the feelings that depression and anxiety bring. Because we're looking for relief. We're looking for something to fix our feelings because they hurt. And we weep. And we cry and we run and we hide and we delve deeper. 
And so Asaph's anguish and angst were personal, powerful, and partially accurate. These people he was observing really were seeming to get away with it. The wicked really were prospering. They really were healthy in front of him. They really were rich in front of him. They really were succeeding in front of him. They really were mocking God in front of him. They really were drinking in waters of abundance in their life while he was suffering. That was real. And those were real feelings. And in a sense, they were accurate. They were not complete. They were partially accurate. And so when we talk about the feelings of anxiety and depression, angst and anguish, when we talk about those things, we need to say, we need to own up, these are real feelings and they are powerful. If suicide is the third leading cause of death between 10 and 14 years old, Shouldn't that scare us? We have institutes to fight cancer and we give. I'm all for that. And we watch cancer take in. But then by the time they're 15 to 34, it becomes the second leading even above cancer. And so obviously we're dealing with something very painful and very real. And we must take it seriously. Now, I want to get into some doctrine here about how this is all working. Come with me to Psalm 73.10 and let's just read through some feelings that Asaph has. I'm going to do the best I can with time here today, my brothers and sisters. So, so hang with me here. 73 verses 10 through 14. There's a series of superlatives here. These superlatives are important because they convey the depth of his feelings. Those superlatives are found, as he says in verse 10, Therefore his people returned to this place and waters of abundance. This is a superlative. So, man, they got all they want. It's, it's, it's more than enough. It's beyond what they need. These people are wicked and they have more than enough to be existentially, to be temporarily happy. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the, knowledge with the Most High? And then he uses the word behold. It's a very powerful. Have you ever been trying to get a point across to somebody and they just weren't listening? And finally you said, look, look here, look at this. Do you ever get to that point? Come on. Have you had to do that? Maybe with your child, maybe with your parent. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, and, and so you're saying, look, you're in a, you're in a ball game and, and, and you see something's going on, there's a foul that goes on, or there's a penalty, and you jump up and you yell at the ref, what do you yell? Look! Are you blind? Can't you see this? Well, that's the word that's being used here, behold. What he's saying is, look at these guys. Man, they're getting away scot-free. They're living evil, wanton, wicked lives, immoral lives, turning from God, disobeying Him, and man, they're they're getting away with it. Look at this! And he uses another superlative. He says always in verse 12. Always at ease. Now, that's not just true, but he, he feels that way. And it's a superlative. Man, they're always at ease. Come on, what's up with this? Then he uses the word surely in verse 13. It was the one he opened the psalm with. It means absolutely certainly. It's another superlative. I've kept my heart pure in vain. This is the depth of his anguish. He's ready to give up his faith. This is this God thing's a waste of time. Here I am trying to be faithful, 
trying to follow God, trying to obey God, trying to serve God. And what am I? I'm sick. I'm afflicted all day long. And these guys have an abundance of everything that they need. They're getting away with it. Their life is posh. They're, they're well fed. They're well healed. They've got good jobs. They're successful. They're healthy. They don't even seem to hurt when they die. And so he's really broken over this. And he's at the point in his anguish, in his feelings, that he's going to forsake his beliefs. He's going to disobey. This is very important because here's what Satan does. Satan is intent on using the offer of temporal pleasure to delay eternal pain. Please hear me. Satan is intent on using the offer of temporal pleasure to delay eternal pain. And so what happens is as you begin to suffer, as you begin to have something that hurts, sorrows, anxieties, angst, anguishes, when you begin to suffer, Satan steps up in the midst of your suffering and says, Looky here. Hope in this thing. Pursue this thing. It will relieve your hurts. And all Satan is doing in that is delaying your pain. If you went to the doctor and you had a cancer and the doctor saw the cancer and he said, let me relieve your pain. And he began simply injecting the side of the hurt in your cancer, the pain from your cancer. He began to inject it with nothing more than a deadener. And while the cancer spread... He did not address it. He did not attack it. He did not seek to remove it. He did not seek to kill it. He simply sought to numb it. That's all Satan is doing, playing with your soul. He is trying to numb you so that the pain of eternal judgment is not something you're going to worry about. He does it through immorality, alcohol, drugs. He does it through things and comforts. He is playing a game to murder your soul and mar the image of God in you. And He is relentless and He is a liar. On the other hand, God is intent on using temporal pain to cause us to seek eternal pleasure. This is a wiring thing of the universe. For God, all the offers of good pleasures in this life are hints of what He wants to do for you in heaven. Every good gift, every good thing, every glorious and righteous 
holy thing, every good He does to you and for you is simply a hint of what He wants to do for you eternally. But He doesn't want you to pursue the pleasure. He wants you to take the hand. When I come home on Sundays, my wife makes this fabulous dinner almost every Sunday. Today's roast beef, gravy, biscuits, green beans. It's going to be an experience. And what I do when I get home before dinner's really ready is I... Guys, do you ever do this? I sneak over to the food. Here's what I do. I pull up, if it's roast beef, I pull up a little piece of the roast beef. All right? And then I take and shake just, and I do this right in my hand, just a little bit of Tony Sachery's. You know what I'm talking about? And then I take a little block of cheese, because Sherry serves these little hors d'oeuvres there, and put a little block of cheese on there. And then I might even dip it right into the gravy. <laughs> and do you know what it is? It's a foretaste of glory divine. That's what it is. And all it is, is a hint of what's to come. All of the joys and pleasures that God gives us through His goodwill are all hints of the glory to come. We sing it. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story. This is my song. So all good things. But listen, though they are hints of what is to come, All suffering is help so that you will avoid what could happen. The reason that God allowed the world to be put into the condition of futility. Listen carefully. He turns to Adam and says, Cursed is the ground because of you. That futility curse is fleshed out in Romans chapter 8 where it says, come with me, Romans chapter 8, read the futility curse there that is purposeful where God, through the futility curse, is helping you not place your faith in the things of this world that are temporal and deceptive, but in the things that are beyond this world. So in Romans 8, he says it this way. Verse 18, Romans 8, For I considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption. All of your suffering that you go through on this earth, every bad thing that ever happens, God in His infinite design of wisdom is using it as a help to warn you to avoid a place called hell. He is deeply interested in restoring His image in you and saving you from the murder of Satan. 
And so this futility that you feel that every baby born is going to die, every house built is going to fall, every person is going to age, every bit of what we hope for in this life as physical cannot be sustained. No. God is using that to help you know that you must not trust in the things of this world. You must not. God is helping Turn your trust to Him. Satan is seeking to turn your trust from God. Satan lures you with pleasure that that may be the apex of what you're after. God gives you hints of pleasure that you may know it is but a foretaste of glory divine found in Christ Jesus. And so there is this war. It is happening in your feelings. Pleasures and pains are competing Hints and helps for you from God, temptations and snares to you from Satan, and you have to make a decision in those. Satan is a traitor of false hope. That's what he's after. He wants you to trust in a person for your fulfillment. He wants you to trust in a pleasure for your fulfillment. He wants you to trust in power for your fulfillment. He wants, Satan is tricking you to trust and to disobey God, but to trust in the things that you're not to have, hoping that you will arrive at a happiness that you cannot keep. He is a liar. The psalmist began to realize that. Okay, now I've got to press forward. Number three. Asaph's anguish and angst were testing the quality, the object, and the substance of his faith. What do I mean by that? Quality, it's like the gold refined last week. Fool's gold is melted down and you realize there's no gold in it. And sometimes God will melt you down to show you that you have no faith and you need to turn to Christ and be saved. Sometimes He will melt you down to show the quality and the object of your faith so that the the dross can be taken away. And sometimes the substance of your faith, so that the substance of your faith is in a person. That's what He's after. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, Hebrews 6, 1 the assurance of things unseen. And so his anguish was testing. His, his angst was testing the quality of the object and the substance of his faith. If your suffering has made you turn to disobedience, something has been revealed about you. If your suffering has led you to sin, to immorality, to disobedience. It has revealed something about the nature, the quality, and the object of your faith. And God lets you go through it to teach you that. Some of you, you're here, you've turned to trust in something other than God to be happy, to be fulfilled. And you're placing your hopes on something that cannot bear or sustain you. And it will crush you. And God loves you enough to give you helps and hints along the way. Satan hates you enough to tempt you and lie to you along the way. I have to hurry. So let's go to number four. I'll flesh out a little bit of this next week. Number four. Asaph's anguish and angst were exposing the location of his expectation and his hope of the fulfillment of his desires. What does that mean? Asaph's problem 
was that he was looking for his desires to be fulfilled here on this earth. And God said, Asaph, you're wrong. And he had to break him to show him. He had to use hints and helps to bring Asaph to the place to realize he had made a grave mistake. He was expecting his desires to be ultimately fulfilled in this present world. You say, Pastor Bart, how can you say, where's, where's that backed up in Scripture? The Apostle Paul says something to us that I want to take you to. So let's go over to the New Testament. And let's go to... I'm, I'm having to look back at my notes. Y'all pardon me a second. The book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. Nineteen. Verse nineteen. Fifteen nineteen. The Apostle Paul's using some strong language here in the midst of suffering, in light of the resurrection, and he's teaching what Asaph learned that we'll pick up on next week when Asaph finds the answer to his anguish and anxiety and his angst and his depression. He finds the answer. Come with me to first Corinthians fifteen. Look in verse 19 at this incredible verse. If we, talking about believers, have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. What's he saying? He's saying that the most pitiful thing that you and I could do is to hope in this life. That's the most pitiful thing. Because our rewards are not here. Our reign is not here. Our riches are not here. Our righteousness is not here. All that we truly long for is not here, but only given to us in hints and foretastes so that we live in a thing called hope. So that that hope compels us forward to the future. Let's look at what the Bible says about that. Two places. The first is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The second is in 2 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 8. And then we'll close. So stay with me. Second Corinthians chapter one. Listen to Paul's words. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. This is Second Corinthians one eight. How bad was it? That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. That means that God, yes, He actually will allow more into your life than you can handle. He will. Go get your little book of Bible promises and write this one in. He will allow more in your life than you can handle. He will. He'll never allow more in your life than He can handle. That's the point. 
We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired, even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. And then there's a Hena cause, a purpose cause, in order that we should not do what? Trust in ourselves. Some of you are here today and you are trusting in yourself. You're trusting in your reason. You're trusting in your own abilities. You're trusting in your own judgment. You're trusting in your own decisions. Listen carefully. God is interested in breaking that. And he brought Paul to the place where he broke it. And he says, so that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who does what? Who does what? Raises the dead. So what Paul was saying is, we were not placing our trust here in this life. We were placing placing our trust in the life to come. God who raises the dead. And then he says, in whom we have set our hope. In whom, not in what, and not in a person on this earth. God used Paul's anguish, his angst, his anxiety, his depression, his brokenness, his place of coming to the place where he was so disillusioned with life that he even had the sentence of death. And he said, I can't, I won't, we won't, we're not going to make it another day. The sentence of death is on us. We don't have the strength to do this. We are beyond ourselves. He has broken us. And God says, I did it for a reason. To get you to trust in me. Because my reward is not in this life. It's in the life to come. This is how the Iraqi prisoners on death row who are being executed by ISIS will not renounce their faith. It's why they, as they are tortured, as they are maimed, as they are cut, as they are blown up, as they are shot, as they are shot, it's why they won't give up. Satan says, renounce your faith and you will be relieved. God says, hold your faith and you will be eternally rewarded. God is asking us to trust His wisdom when we hurt the most. And to not ever seek our answers in ways He disapproves. That's what's happening with Asaph. This is where the gospel comes in. And this is the glory of the chemistry experience. As we mix all of these things together, we say, how is this fixed? If the fall brought this cataclysmic, emotional, relational, spiritual, existential train wreck that we are having so bad that every 12 minutes, one of us in the United States offs ourselves. Where is the hope? The hope is in the man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. Who came and bore the very thing that caused all of this train wreck, our sin. And He defeated the one who's been railing us since that train wreck, the devil. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death Jesus might render powerless Him who had the power of death. That is the devil, who through the fear of death had kept us enslaved all of our lives. Jesus Christ is the gospel good news.
that the physical ailments will be removed. The relational separation will be removed. The existential shame will be removed. The sickness and the dying and the dread and all of the things will be removed because He swallowed every ounce of it at the cross for your sake. He drank it in like the waters of the universe, of the ocean, of the rivers. He drank it into His soul and He swallowed it into His being that in heaven it may never touch you. That's why in the descriptions of heaven it says there's no night. To be scared of. There's no dark. There's no fear. There's no death. There's no crying. There's no pain. There's no separation. The former things, the fall things, the depressing things have been done away with. Praise be to Jesus. That's the glory. It doesn't matter how dark you are, how far you've come, how far you've wandered. There is a Savior. And He seeks you with love unmatched. Glory divine. He woos you with His incredible, everlasting, substantial love wherewith He died for your sins and was raised from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father right now. And He says, Come unto Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Jesus. Would you bow with me? I don't know where you're at, but Jesus is calling. I don't know what you've done, but Jesus is calling. I don't know where you are, but Jesus is calling. And He's calling just like God did in the Garden of Eden to Adam. He first says, where are you? Not because Jesus needs to know where you are, because God didn't need to know where Adam was. He wanted Adam to see where he was. And so God says to you, where are you? Are you hiding? Are you running? Are you anxious? Are you depressed? Are you broken? Are you dismayed? Where are you? Fess up. Own up. Even this moment. Would you do that? Jesus wants to bring you out of darkness into the light. The Bible said the scary thing is that men love darkness more than the light because their deeds were evil. Come on out in the light. Let your deeds be what they are. You know what? I'm a complete idiot and there is no excuse for a human being like me. Did you know that? It's true. There is no excuse for a human being like me. But do you know what? I have a wonderful future and I have a hope. Why? Because Jesus came and He died on the cross living the life I should have lived, dying the death I should have been given. He took my place and gave me such a gift so that now, do you know what my future's like? God is going to give me the future that He's promised to Jesus. Because of what Jesus did for me, I inherit the promises to Him. And do you know what? Anybody can get in on this. You just have to say, I'm that idiot. And there's no excuse. Come to Jesus. 
He will forgive you. He'll wash you. He'll save you. And here's what's glorious. He'll keep you. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me to receive Jesus right now? Go ahead. Join me. Father in heaven, I am that person, that sinner, that idiot, and I have no excuse for what I've done. But I sure am sorry. And I've heard this good news that your son Jesus lived in my place, doing what I should have done, and died in my place, getting what I should have gotten. But in this moment, I place my faith in him. I turn from my sin. And I ask you, save me. Wash me. Cleanse me. Keep me. I'm yours. Oh, Father, thank you. Oh, if in the heart of hearts, in the place of faith you called upon Him, He is righteous and mighty to save, and He will. And it's time to follow Him. All He saves come after Him. Would you come after Him? As God works in your heart today, whatever He's doing, would you stand and would you respond to Him through His Holy Spirit? Would you come? From wherever you've been Come broken hearted Let rescue begin Come find your mercy Oh sinner come near Earth has no sorrow That heaven can tear Earth has no sorrow That heaven can tear Lay down your burdens, lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. Oh, wanderer, come, oh, you're not. Lay down your hurt, lay down your heart, come as you are. There's hope for the hopeless and all those who have strayed. Come sit at the table, come taste the grace. There's rest for the weary, a rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. So lay down your burdens, lay down your shame. All who are broken.
Just a couple of things. Uh, you can be seated. This will take me. I can do this in two minutes. Um, and Wendy and Steve, if y'all have anything, I'll follow up with it. Okay. Um, there is a place in our journey that we actually need the intervention of others. There's a place along our way that we need help that comes from outside. Somehow the church has harmed herself by saying. It's not spiritual to seek medical help with depression. And that's a lie. And so I want to encourage you that if you are someone that you know is suffering from depression and you do not see yourself coming out, if you do see yourself making bad decisions, sinful, immoral, um, foolish, bad financial decisions, if you see yourself trying to cope by, by choosing bad things, it's call in help. Call in brothers and sisters who you trust, who would speak the word of the Lord, and call in professional help. We're going to be establishing a, a web page by the end of this week with resources for you that you can go to our website and you can click on and it will have several different kinds of resources from reading material to videos to people you can actually see and make an appointment with for um, care, for for depression or anxiety or suicidal thoughts. And so we're, we're working really hard to give lots of options and opportunities for you. But I want to share with you, it is not unspiritual to look for help outside of just your, 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 your Bible time or your spiritual growth. In fact, I encourage it. And this is a place also where church discipline matters. If you see a brother or a sister who making bad decisions because of their hurt, step in and share the truth with them in love so that they do not fall into the snare of the devil. Because all Satan is doing is lying. He's lying thief. Don't listen to him. God is a loving Redeemer. Listen to Him. I love you. I pray the blessings of God on you. Let's bow together and pray. Uh, before we pray, I do want to mention there's an upcoming trip to Ecuador in October, another one in November, one to build a bathroom in October, one to do the water trip in November. I'm going to give you more of an overview of that, but if you would like to go on the October trip, it starts on the first day of October through the 11th or 12th, uh, Harry Eagles will be in the lobby and you can speak with him and he will give you some information about that. We'll have a whole layout of the other trip coming up as well in the next couple of weeks. I love you. Let's pray. Let's stand together. Hold somebody's hand. Grab the hand next to you. Hold somebody's hand and, uh, and let's pray. Father, the enemy, the enemy is fierce. He's, he is horrid. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's a trickster. He's a huckster. He is a, a, a vendor of false hope. And so I pray, Father, turn us through hints in pleasure and through helps in pain. Show us the weight of your glory that we may seek it and know you and be pleased and satisfied. Give us the help we need, whether just by your Holy Spirit or by the church or by the medical help, whatever, God. Grant us that we may be delivered in Jesus' name. Amen.
fountains flow. Bless me, your name. 